0: This morning I want to take you to Psalm 131. If you'll turn there with me. This psalm belongs to a subset of psalms that I refer to as the Pilgrim Psalms. It's a series of 15 consecutive psalms that all begin with this same inscription, a song of ascents. It's a collection of short psalms that begins in Psalm 120 and It runs consecutively through Psalm 134, 15 psalms. They all have that same inscription, and they're the only psalms in the the book of Psalms that have that inscription. So it's clear they go together, and it constitutes a small book of short choruses within the Psalter. And these seem to be verses that were sung by pilgrims on an uphill journey to Jerusalem. Going uphill, that's why they're called Psalms of Ascent, Uh, Three times a year, people from all over Israel would travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate annual feasts. There were three of them. People came for Passover, they came for the Feast of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And those three occasions were the, the Jewish pilgrim feasts, and everyone who was able would come to Jerusalem for the celebration. And the journey from every direction, no matter where you started would be uphill because Jerusalem and the temple is at the top of a hill. So it was always uphill, and it was a steep, hard, day-long climb from Jericho, for example. Jericho is a town less than 16 miles as the crow flies from the temple in Jerusalem. That's the same distance as from here to downtown Los Angeles. But Jericho is 1,200 feet below sea level, And the Temple Mount is 2,450 feet above sea level. So this journey from Jericho was a long, steep, uphill climb, gaining more than a kilometer in elevation, uh, in addition to the 18 miles of the road. We know it was 18 miles in Jesus' time because Josephus, who was a contemporary of Jesus and the apostles, says that that road was about 18 miles long. So it's a grueling uphill climb. And anyone who came on foot from Galilee had about a two- or three-day journey to, to get there, two days or so before they even got to Jericho. And then they, they would make that day-long trip from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And there were vast numbers of pilgrims who made that trek. And that last leg of their journey took them on that what was a steep, winding road to Jerusalem. And so along the way, in order to pass the time and to prepare their hearts for worship, they would sing these 15 psalms. And if you sang one psalm every half hour on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, these 15 psalms would fit the journey perfectly. Now, three of the last four psalms in this collection are only three verses long each. And Psalm 131 is the first of these very short choruses, one of the shortest chapters in all of Scripture, just three verses and so it's a simple chorus with a very focused theme. See if you can recognize the theme as I read the psalm. And here's a hint. This echoes something Jesus taught. So here's our psalm. A song of ascent of David. O oh, Yahweh, my heart is not exalted, and my eyes are not raised high, and I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. Surely I have soothed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, wait for Yahweh from now until forever. Now the theme of that chorus, you you know it already because it's the title of my message, it's about the childlikeness of true faith. That, of course, is also the theme of Matthew 18. Here are the first four verses from Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew, chapters 18 and 19, almost two full chapters, Matthew focuses on expounding the, the theme of the childlikeness of the believer, that child whom Jesus placed in the midst of the disciples was a purposeful symbol of believers, all believers, not just those who are still literally children, but all believers, everyone who truly believes in Christ is a child of God, and they are supposed to be childlike in spirit. And two verses later in Matthew eighteen six. Jesus refers to believers as these little ones who believe in me. Now, physically, some of us aren't really little ones anymore. But Jesus characterizes all believers that way because there is an inherent childlikeness in true faith. And the point he's making here is just that, that true saving faith is inherently childlike. Authentic believers have an implicit trust in God which is exactly like the absolute trust of an infant who looks to father and mother for every need. And still in Matthew, a chapter later, chapter 19, verse 13, we read this, Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them he departed from there. Now that, of course, shows God's special care for infants and little children. When Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, I am convinced that he is speaking both broadly and literally. That text is actually one of several clues in Scripture that undergirds our belief that infants who die in infancy are graciously received by Christ into heaven. We teach that babies to go to heaven not because they're innocent. They, they aren't. Yes, children are born fallen. Babies inherit the same sinful nature that you and I have, and it's part of what makes us guilty. So they are born guilty, and they, they look sweet and innocent as newborns, but just wait. You, you don't have to teach them to lie or throw temper tantrums or be self-centered. That's in their nature. They are just like every one of Adam's offsprings, offspring, natural offspring. They are fallen and guilty and self-willed and enslaved to sin. And in and of themselves, they have no more merit than you or I. That is what the doctrine of original sin teaches, and that we inherited a sinful nature from our ancestors. We didn't become sinners because we sinned. It's the opposite. We sin because it's in our nature to do that. And that is true of our children and our grandchildren as well. I know that. And yet, Scripture tells us repeatedly that God is mercifully and extraordinarily tender toward little ones. We believe that if they die, they go straight to heaven, not because they somehow deserve it, not because they are guiltless, but they are received into heaven because God is abundantly gracious toward little children. Jonah 4.11, for example, speaks of God's special care for little ones who are too young to know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, David states his expectation that he will see his infant son who died, he will see him again on the other side of the grave. And Scripture is full of indications like that, that God shows a particular grace to children who die in infancy and here Jesus blesses little children and states emphatically that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little ones such as these and it's appropriate i think to take that in a literal sense but we also need to interpret it as broadly as Jesus does he isn't speaking only of little children of course those those words the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these actually apply to everyone whose faith in Christ has that childlike quality of implicit trust. And you know that from Mark 10, which is the parallel account of that same incident where the disciples tried to rebuke people for bringing their children. And Mark adds an extra detail that shows just how broadly Christ was applying this promise. Here is Mark's account from Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. Mark writes, "...and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them." But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then Mark adds this. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So in other words, Christ pronounced a formal blessing on the literal small children who had been brought to him in in Matthew words so that he might lay hands on them and pray. But he also makes another explicit call for believers to trust him with faith that is pure and childlike. And all of that took place in Galilee among people who were accustomed to making those long annual journeys to Jerusalem for the feast days, So they knew these psalms, and they had known them from childhood. Most of the people listening to Jesus that day could no doubt sing Psalm 131 from memory, and so the idea of childlike faith wouldn't or shouldn't have been new to them, because that is precisely what Psalm 131 is all about. It's a song about the childlikeness of true faith. This is one of David's psalms. It's the third or of of four psalms uh, that David wrote in this subset of 15. A lot of the 15 pilgrim psalms are anonymous. David wrote four of them that are identified with him as the author, and this is the first of, of the third of those, rather. And it fits perfectly with what we know about David. First Samuel 13, 14, and Acts 13, 22. Both of those verses famously refer to David as a man after God's own heart. Psalm 131, I think, gives us, in David's own words, perhaps the most simple, straightforward description of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. It's a heart that appreciates the beauty of humble, eager, compliant, childlike trust. And notice, what this psalm describes is, in many ways, the polar opposite of every value that is venerated in this present world, and by our generation in particular. And frankly, even within the church, the evangelical movement today is overrun with people who think they've been called by God to make Christianity seem more sophisticated, more respectable, politically correct, more more grown up. They think they can reach new heights of academic respectability by questioning things that the Bible clearly says. And David takes a not-so-subtle poke at that popular brand of skeptical scholarship that has destroyed so many churches and seminaries, and and sometimes it leads whole denominations astray. And, And it's clear that David understands that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And Yahweh knows the thoughts of men, that they are vanity. David has no interest in winning the admiration of people whose chief values are power and wealth and wisdom and fame. Even though David has all those things, he sees through the trappings of earthly prestige, and he knows that God sees through that as well. David knows that God sees all things, even the hidden things of the heart, and David doesn't care what men think of him. He's like the Apostle Paul, who in Galatians 1.10 wrote, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? If I were still trying to please men, Paul says, I would not be a slave of Christ. And likewise, David doesn't care whether he's celebrated by people who are renowned and sophisticated. He wants to be seen by God as childlike, poor in spirit, repentant, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful and pure in heart. And you recognize those as the the Beatitudes because that was our Scripture reading this morning. It paints a sweet and perfect portrait of pure-hearted childlikeness. And David's psalm here is shorter and simpler than the Beatitudes, but he actually is drawing the exact same picture because of the brevity and the the content of this psalm. And since it was sung in a group setting with families of fellow pilgrims, I would guess that this probably was one of the first psalms memorized by many Hebrew children during that, especially during that long era when sacrifices were being offered every day at the temple and feasts were regularly celebrated in Jerusalem. This is what they sang on the way to the temple. This is one of the 15 psalms that was designated for that very purpose, and of all of them, it sounds most like a child's chorus. But it's also an important lesson for adults, and it's about several virtues that flatly contradict every tendency of our fallen nature and every value that our culture tells us we should value. These are childlike qualities, and they are, they're harder to cultivate the older you get. Spurgeon said of this psalm, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a grown man in Christ." So here in three verses, according to David, is what authentic faith looks like. Scan the psalm with me. He says, it's not arrogant, verse 1. It's not unruly, first part of verse 2. It's not driven by unhealthy or unwholesome appetites, the end of verse 2. It's settled and focused on Yahweh, verse 3. And it pertains to eternity, from this time forth and forever. And so let's boil this down. Here are three elements of childlike faith that I want to single out and examine closely with you this morning. Three virtuous characteristics of true faith that David exemplifies for us in in his prayer. Like a newly weaned child who is satisfied to rest in the arms of his mother, he is humble, he is hushed, and he is hungry. So, those are the three features I want to look at in this text. Let's take them one at a time. First, verse one, he is humble. And this is my favorite feature of this psalm. Verse one, my heart is not exalted, and my eyes are not raised high, and I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. David is declaring his own humility here, which is a pretty hard thing to do, but he finds a way to do it that doesn't sound like a boast. Again, not an easy thing to do. My best friend occasionally tells me he thinks I should write a book and title it Humility and How I Attained It, which is, I know, his backhanded way of reminding me that I am not always the perfect paragon of gentle meekness. And there was actually a preacher a few years ago, no point in naming him, but but he wrote a book on humility, and just a couple of years later, the leaders of his denomination disciplined him for being arrogant and unteachable. Humility is the most evasive of virtues. It's too easy to be proud of our humility. You know, whenever you think you've mortified your self-righteous sense of self-importance, your own pride will rise from the dead and try to tell you how wonderfully meek and humble you are. But David isn't saying this with any kind of braggadocio. This is not a boastful claim. It's a thankful testimony from a man who deeply feels his own indebtedness to God's grace. It's a statement that perfectly embodies what we know of David's character. His heart was not haughty. Although he was God's own anointed choice as the Messianic dynasty's first true king, his demeanor wasn't lofty. He didn't scheme or conspire to obtain power and greatness, and and, and the royal office was given to him by God, in fact, when he was just a boy. And when Samuel first anointed him, nobody, including David himself, thought very highly of him. And notice, by the way, the thoroughness with which David repudiates pride. He names three distinct symbols of human egotism, and he disavows them all. First, a haughty heart. That is, he's talking about the hidden conceit of those who, like Luke said of the Pharisees in Luke 18 verse 9, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. That's a haughty heart. Then David mentions lofty eyes. He's, He's referring to that arrogant countenance with your nose up in the air and your eyes pointed upward. It's the opposite of that that publican in Luke 18 who, it says, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his chest saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a man who does not have lofty eyes. And finally, David repudiates an arrogant mind. He disclaims any hint of egotism in his thoughts or motives or ambitions. Still in verse 1, I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. And he uses a Hebrew verb there, involve myself. It's interesting because it literally means to walk. I don't walk into these great matters that are too big for me. The image it evokes is that of a guy who wades into waters that turn out to be too deep for him. Literally, uh, he's saying, I don't intrude into matters that are too great or too wonderful for me. In other words, true humility, as David describes it here, will tame the heart and the eyes and the feet. The heart, of course, is the seat of evil pride. Lofty eyes are where pride shows itself most clearly in visible form, and the feet are a metaphor for all of our actions. David's saying that true humility ruled him. It ruled his heart. It was reflected in his physical posture as well, and it framed his thoughts and ambitions and activities. It, It kept his feet within the right boundaries. So, a humble heart was the defining feature of David's unique character, and that's why Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. And I love how David himself describes his humility. I do not involve myself in great matters. Here's the New American Standard Bible. I do not involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now, that's an unusual attitude for any powerful person, a king or a a college professor, nothing i don't involve myself in anything too difficult to me it's interesting that he freely admits that there are things too difficult for him he isn't wasting his time trying to unscrew the inscrutable or comprehend the incomprehensible the things that are plain and straightforward are hard enough to master and there're lots of them and so he is devoted to what he knows to be true not concerned with lofty opinions that come from theorists and philosophers. And it's extraordinary, isn't it, to meet powerful people like that, even some not-so-powerful people, seminary students, who don't often have that humble worldview. In fact, let me say this specifically to the seminarians in our midst. I can't tell you how many really gifted young men I have observed over the years who have derailed spiritually because they were seduced by the lure of prestigious academic stature or they were enthralled with theological novelties. And in their eagerness to impress people with philosophy and speculation, they forget they're supposed to be serving the Lord who has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So that no man may boast before God. Keep that in mind. It's what David is saying here. It's not very common. I recently corresponded by email with a young man who hadn't even started seminary yet, but he wrote a book on the ontology of the Godhead that he was hoping he could get published. He wrote me for advice on how to publish it. He said he was prepared to publish it himself if no publisher wanted. He was that devoted to it. And he insisted that every theologian in the history of the Christian church had been wrong about the Trinity. And his book was full of bad arguments and misunderstandings and simplistic reasoning and bad interpretations of Scripture, but he was absolutely unteachable. I think he was in his early 20s when he wrote to me, and he was quite certain that he was already smarter and more learned than all the men in church history who ever studied theology before him. And he was way over his head, and I could see that he was sinking fast. But you could never convince him of that. He actually told me he didn't believe there's anything unfathomable or impenetrable in Scripture. He said he'd never been stymied by any theological conundrum. Everything in the Bible was as plain today as day to him, he said. I know a few old guys who think that way, too, and, you know, according to them, nothing is too difficult for them. They always seem to want to make their mark and seal their reputation by tackling some arcane theological question and coming up with some outlandish doctrinal scheme that no one ever thought of before. And that, frankly, is how cults get started. That's not the way to do good doctrine. But David, a man after his own heart, despises that attitude and he flatly disclaims it here. David, who was used by God to write some of the key biblical texts that speak about the infinitude and unfathomable greatness of God, David freely admits that there are things too difficult for him. He says the same thing in Psalm 139. That's that great psalm on the omniscience and omnipresence of God. And in Psalm 139, verse 6, David says, "'Such knowledge is too wonderful for me,' it's too high, I can't attain to it. And in 2 Peter 3.16, the Apostle Peter writes, there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. We need to acknowledge that and embrace it like David does and admit, there are things that are just over our heads. Quite simply, there are mysteries and enigmas in Scripture, and some of the hardest questions that, that we ask are simply not completely answered for us. There's enough there to keep us in the faith, but there's not enough there to answer every single question we might have. But we are forbidden to intrude into matters that God has kept hidden. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. And childlike faith accepts that limitation. It's it's self-evident, really. There are things too difficult for us. We can't figure everything out. We ought to admit it and anchor ourselves in the truths that we do understand, because there are plenty of those. And then occupy our hearts and minds with the things that are clear. It's like, I think, Mark Twain, who said, it's not the stuff in the Bible that I don't understand that really troubles me. It's the stuff I do understand. Now, he was speaking as a skeptic. I'll say as a believer, same thing is true, because some of the commands that are very clear in Scripture are not all that easy to obey. And I also need to say in this context, uh, contrary to the current idea that is popular among postmodernists, it is not really humility to, to pretend that nothing is ever clear or certain. That's a corruption of humility. There are lots of people today who have the false idea that everything we believe about God is ultimately just a matter of personal opinion, that there is no such thing as settled certain authority. And therefore, they think if you say that someone else's religious beliefs or worldview is wrong, you're being arrogant to say that, that we shouldn't be dogmatic about anything. And and there are, sadly, lots of people who profess to believe the Bible who still buy into that lie. I don't get it because uncertainty or feigned ignorance about everything is not humility at all. It is sinful and spiritual suicide because it's a denial of the authority of God's Word. This false notion of humility, that's certainly not what David is describing here. If you want to know what David means, you just have to look at the record of his life because the childlike attitude he describes in verse 1 of our psalm is a virtue that colored his life and character, except in a couple of well-known, uncharacteristic incidents where David sinned in notorious ways. Those sins were departures from what he's extolling here. In fact, it's ironic, isn't it, that David's greatest sins occurred because his greatest strengths failed him. Your strength will always fail you, so whatever you're strongest at... That's what you need to guard most carefully, and it's significant because we see the same phenomenon frequently in Scripture. Moses, you know, for example, Numbers 12, 3 says he was the meekest man on earth, and yet Moses sinned away his opportunity to enter the promised land when he lost his temper in front of the whole nation, lost his meekness for just a moment. But it was disaster for him, and David's most outstanding qualities were his purity of heart, he wrote about that frequently in the Psalms, and his humility, those two, two great virtues that characterized David and made him a man after God's own heart, and yet his two most notorious sins occurred because his own strengths of character failed. One of them, of course, was the incident with Bathsheba, which was compounded by a diabolical conspiracy to cover it up, involving the murder of her husband, Uriah, That's hardly an expression of pure-heartedness, right? David also sinned when his kingdom was at the peak of prosperity, and he sinned by taking a census that was designed to publicize the nation's numerical strength and affluence, which is precisely the kind of arrogance David condemns in our psalm. But those were deviations. Those were irregularities in the character of David, we we shouldn't make those, uh, treat them as if they were the characteristic features of his life. The opposite is true. For most of his life and career, the humility he extols in this psalm was the dominant feature of his character. His heart was not exalted. His eyes were not raised high, and he did not involve himself in great matters or in matters too marvelous, too difficult. Remember, David didn't even seek the throne in the first place. In his early adolescence, he was called in from the fields while he was tending his father's flock as a shepherd, low rung on the totem pole. And he was anointed at that point by, by uh, the prophet Samuel to be king. And even then, David didn't take the throne for himself. He spent years, at least a decade, as a fugitive and a refugee living in hiding While Saul, who knew he was anointed to take Saul's place, Saul pursued David relentlessly trying to kill him. And although David had opportunities to end Saul's life, he refused to raise his hand in violence against a king who had been anointed to lead God's people. And then later in David's career, his own favorite son, Absalom, tried to usurp the throne and David left Jerusalem rather than stay there and fight against Absalom for the throne. And in fact, on his way out of Jerusalem, this filthy lowlife named Shimei cursed David and threw dirt at him. And David bore all of it patiently. The humility he extols in this verse was clearly reflected in his character for most of his life, virtually all of his life. And in fact, David's character makes a stark contrast between uh, with, with every other known king in the ancient Near East. Their besetting sins, all of them, were dominated by the arrogance and pomposity that usually characterize the rulers of this world, even to this day. And David repudiates all of that. Most men crave respectability and status, especially men who have tasted power and prestige. They tend to seek it all the more. But David was the polar opposite. His crowning virtue was his humility, and even though he was the most eminent man in the nation, king over God's chosen people, therefore the most favored man in the world, he desired only to be seen by God as childlike. That's what made David truly noble. And this psalm is actually reminiscent of that incident when David was, you remember, returning the ark to Jerusalem after it had been in captivity for more than a hundred years, and Scripture says in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14, that David was dancing before Yahweh with all his strength, and David was girded with a linen ephod. In other words, he, he had removed the regal robes of a king and put on a simple linen garment like the priests wore, and rather than being carried at the head of the procession, with all the royal pomp of a king, which was his right, he dressed so that he'd blend in with the priests, and he traveled on foot with the procession, dancing and celebrating the return of the ark a hundred years after it had been uh, taken captive by the Philistines in the time of Eli. And the stress in that episode was on his joy and his exuberance. Again, quite childlike. David simply didn't care what people thought of him. He was totally overwhelmed with joy that the Ark of the Covenant was finally coming to Jerusalem. And then 2 Samuel 6.16 says, His own wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. His own wife. Her father, Saul, had was was way more concerned with the kingly dignity than that, and evidently she thought David should be too. And when David arrived home, she gave him an earful. Verse 20, she came out to meet David and said, "'How the king of Israel has glorified himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the worthless ones shamelessly uncovers himself.'" So she makes it sound as if he was indecently exposed or something, but he wasn't. He had just simply laid aside his kingly robes, which is exactly what Christ did for us, according to Philippians two. And you know that was a scandal as well for Christ, the God of the universe and a rightful king of kings coming to earth in such a lowly fashion. But Proverbs fifteen thirty three, before glory comes humility. And I love how David answered Michael when she scolded him, 2 Samuel 6, 21-22. He said, I was dancing before Yahweh who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate unto Yahweh, and I will be esteemed even more lightly than this and will be humble in my own eyes. Franz Dalich, the great 19th century Lutheran Old Testament scholar, Paraphrase that, try and explain what David meant as he as he speaks to to Michael, he paraphrases it this way he says he said, I esteem myself even less than I now show it, and I appear base in my own eyes. Or in other words, you, you think I look childish instead of kingly? Before God I am more of a little child than you would ever imagine. That's how he was thinking, and that's the spirit of this psalm. David understands the childlikeness of true faith, and he purposely cultivates a childlike spirit before God. It's a holy self-abasement. It's the, the very thing Jesus spoke of in Matthew 23, 12, when Jesus said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And everything Scripture tells us about David affirms His testimony here. Even when he sins, a horrific sin, you see his humility in the way he repents. The biblical epitaph on his life does acknowledge his sin, but Scripture records it in a way that reminds us that these presumptuous sins were not what characterized David's life. In fact, listen to God's own summary of David's uprightness. This is from 1 Kings 15.5. David did what was right in the sight of Yahweh and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life, except in the cause of Uriah the Hittite. So it mentions his sin, saves it to the very end, and points out that that's an exception. His character and his track record are such that David can even say of himself that he's not lifted up, he's humble. He can declare... His own meekness without forfeiting it, and that's not an easy thing to do, like I said. Even the way he speaks of humility is kind of humble. He claims humility without a hint of pride, and that's something only a truly humble man could do. So that's the dominant characteristic of childlike faith, humility. The person who is truly childlike stands out, first of all, because he is humble. Second, according to our psalm, he is hushed. Notice verse 2, surely I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And again, the stress here is on the child's implicit trust, a calm and quiet heart. This picture is a soul totally at rest. It's comparable to a sleeping child, well-fed, "...with no fear or disquiet because the child knows the mother is there to meet any need or avert any crisis." It makes really a beautiful picture. And by the way, in this symbolic expression, the mother figure is God. Psalm 68.5 says, "...God is a father of the fatherless." Here he's pictured in the role of a caring mother to everyone who has childlike faith... It's like where Paul reminded the Thessalonians, he said, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here, it's that same comparison applied to God, who is likewise gentle and full of tender care and compassion for his children. But this verse isn't about God, that's just an incidental implication of the verse. The point David is making is, again, about himself. He says, I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. So he's not one of those three-year-olds who gets the seat right behind you on a cross-country flight, you know, screaming and fidgety and kicking the back of your seat because they feel the motion of the plane and the changes in cabin pressure, and, and they're uneasy, they're concerned, they're scared, or they're nervous, or whatever. This is a weaned child who is still an infant because he's in his mother's arms. But this is one who has moved past the anxiety and uncertainty of the weaning process. But this child now has learned that even when a mother says no to her, his pleading and complaining, still every need will be met. And, and more than that, the parent knows better than the child how best to satisfy that, that gnawing hunger. It's a picture of a child who has learned to trust and be satisfied. And it's also an illustration of absolute dependence and unquestioning trust. This is the nature of authentic faith. The, the crying and complaining and fidgeting restlessness are part of the weaning process, but that belongs to the past now. This is a child at rest in the tender loving-kindness of maternal arms. And so it's the picture of the purest kind of easygoing satisfaction. The, the spiritual weaning process disengages our hearts from everything that is selfish and every appetite that is sim- sinful and every fear that foments doubt and distrust. And all of this has a quieting effect on the soul. It fosters a sense of security. David often wrote about this, Psalm 27, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride, we will not fear. Even climate change, we're not supposed to fear. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And that, by the way, is a common expression. I'd love to trace it through Scripture sometime, but it's repeated in both the Old and New Testaments. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, verse 6, Yahweh is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus said, don't fear the person who threatens to kill you or hurt you. Fear the one who could actually throw you in hell. That's God. That's who you should fear. What can man do to you, ultimately? Hebrews 13, 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Security. This, by the way, is one of my favorite theological terms of all time, security. I think I've told you before that This is the first theological dilemma that I ever pondered. As soon as I embraced Christ with saving faith, the question occurred to me, can I lose my salvation? Which is to say, am I really secure in Christ? And to ask that question that way is to reveal the absurdity of it. Am I secure in Christ? Where else do you think you could ever be secure? Scripture places so much stress on the security of the believer, that frankly, I don't see how any Bible-believing individual can hang on very long to the notion that it is possible to be lost again after Christ has saved you. The truth is, if it were up to you, you could, but Scripture teaches that salvation is of the Lord, and He's not going to let you go. The truth is, if it were up to you, if you could sin in some way that would forfeit your own salvation, you would, you would. We are all too weak to stand on our own. Every one of us is prone to sin and powerless to keep ourselves safe from sin. But Scripture says God is the one who keeps us. First Peter 1.5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. And that's pointing to the last time, speaking of our ultimate glorification. God Himself is the one who is keeping us safe, and He's doing it for eternity. He holds us in a manner that is comparable to a mother rocking a sleeping child, only He does it with infinitely more strength and security. John 10, 29, no one will snatch them out of His hand. And if you are truly saved, you are secure in Christ. In Paul's words, I am convinced that Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Belief in that promise should hush all of our fears. And that same sense of security is precisely what causes David to say in verse 2 of our psalm, I have soothed and quieted my soul. There's another implication in this word picture. This image of a weaned child means that growth is steadily taking place. The child is coming to maturity. In the words of 1 Peter two two, like newborn babies, we long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. But there comes a time, according to Hebrews 5, when we graduate from the milk of God's Word and get to the meat of it. The writer of Hebrews actually scolds his readers for demanding milk rather than solid food. Their their spiritual appetites were not developing properly. Hebrews 5.13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. And that brings us to the third characteristic of David's childlike faith. First, he's humble. Second, he's hushed. Now third, he's hungry. And the image David draws for us is a weaned child, peacefully asleep in his mother's arms, fully satisfied, wholly at rest. He's past the fidgety restlessness that every child goes through when their mom starts to say no to every request for nursing. But the child also now knows the variety of flavors that are available and with more solid foods. And he has learned that actually grown-up food satisfies longer. But trust me, because we've had a few babies go through this stage in our family, a weaned child actually gains a bigger appetite. Solid food awakens a taste for more, and that's a good thing. Crying and panic at feeding time gradually recede into the past, but the child doesn't stop eating. And in fact, for a couple of years, you continually have to remind the weaned child not to put everything they touch into their mouths. And the older they get, the more they eat. And this is true in the spiritual realm as well. The restful security that David describes in the first part of verse 2, that, that feeling of pure satisfaction, it doesn't nullify the spiritual appetite. It doesn't mean he's lethargic and inactive. And in fact, his appetite grows. If your faith is truly childlike, you will stay spiritually hungry and never lose your appetite for the meat of the Word. And one more thing about this, even after weaning... A, an, a child is still totally dependent on mom for food. You can't, you know, give an 18-month-old a, a jar of baby food and expect him to feed himself. You can try it, it's kind of entertaining, but but it doesn't work. The absolute re- reliance of that child perfectly pictures the childlikeness of true faith, even after the child is weaned. And the psalm then closes in verse 3 with a short refrain that, echoes Psalm 130, verse 7, Oh Israel, wait for Yahweh.'" And this time he adds, Oh Israel, wait for Yahweh from now until forever.'" So this is a call to faith. The psalmist's testimony was brief and simple, just two verses long, and now he turns to the congregation and appeals to them to join him in making Yahweh the single focus of their hope and their trust.'" So look at this in light of the gospel and consider why true faith is supposed to be inherently childlike. The only legitimate response to gospel truth is humble, hushed, and hungry faith. That's because the gospel itself is a rebuke to human pride. The, The gospel, as set forth in Scripture, rips every artificial covering off of our fleshly pride... Because the starting point of gospel truth is the utter hopelessness of fallen humanity. It starts by telling us we are condemned sinners and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You can't redeem yourself. So we are totally dependent on Christ to save us. We need a Savior. We have no real righteousness of our own. And in the words of Scripture, where then is boasting? It's excluded. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. The gospel is antithetical to human arrogance, and, and that's why true faith always has this quality of childlike humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And for those of you who are believers... Cultivate this spirit of childlike humility. Don't give in to the arrogance of our self-centered culture, but clothe yourself in humility. And if you're not a believer, whether you are a guest with us today, or maybe you're a long-time attender who has never truly humbled yourself in the sight of the Lord, remember that it was Jesus who said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Ponder that. And ask God to open your heart to believe with true and childlike faith.